I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. Another fantastic episode. My guest for today is Rachel Gerritsen, and wait till you hear what she has to talk about when it comes to kids and adolescents and eating disorders. It's a really, really important episode. We talk about the complexities of working with adolescents and children and how we want to hold their confidentiality so they have a safe space to talk while simultaneously understanding that they are minors and there are some things that we're going to have to share with their parents. How do we navigate through that? We also talk about the fact that kids are just like adults where they have so much emotion inside of them. Unfortunately, they don't have the same language as adults do. And that's what makes it really complicated and rewarding working with adolescents and children. I'm telling you, nobody does it like Rachel does. So here we go. I think you're really going to like this episode. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. All right, I'm going to try to get through this episode without either laughing or having like beautiful tears in my eyes because I have such a dear soul in front of me, Rachel Gerritsen. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Karen. It is, it's just such a treat to get to see you and talk to you. Yeah, we go way back. We go way back and listeners don't know, but this is the second time we had to do the opening because I started laughing when I looked at Rachel's face and tried to do the intro. So here we are. We're going to get through this with a lot of love. So Rachel, could you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are? And I've said this before with a few podcasts. This is one of the wonderful episodes where we have somebody who has not had an eating disorder, has had an interesting experience around it, but not actually had it. And Rachel has so much information to share with us. So Rachel, can you tell the listeners about yourself? Sure. So yes, my name is Rachel Gerritsen, uh, formerly Matusko. I was married a few years ago. I started out as a therapist about 12 years ago. And yeah, my journey to becoming a therapist is kind of interesting. And I know we're going to talk about it a little bit later in the podcast. Um, but I, I knew from being in grad school that, or undergrad actually, that I wanted to treat eating disorders. 
Um, and like you said, I've never had one myself. Um, and so I quickly turned all my studies in undergrad to focusing on eating disorders and the treatment and the research and prevention. And I worked at Montanito, um, a really well-known and very well-respected treatment center, um, started in California and is now nationwide. And obviously, Karen, that's how I know you. Um, my best, best years at Montanito, getting to train underneath Carolyn Costin so closely. Um, and now I have my own private practice that I've been in for about three years. And um, I, I treat, I would say about 70% of my clients um, are clients with an eating disorder or some form of disordered eating. Um, but I also really like working with clients who are struggling with depression, anxiety. Um, and I also treat a lot of kiddos, a lot of young, um, some adolescents. I think the youngest that I've treated was 11. Um, and, and then just a lot of young adults. So I'm loving private practice right now. I've always loved the treatment setting, but private practice is also just a lovely way to get to sit one-on-one -on -one and build a really great relationship with your client over the years. I agree. I I think that, you know, or maybe it's just because this is how you and I experienced our, our training and whatnot. I think working in treatment centers is spectacular. The energy around it, the, the, you know, the teamwork, the clients supporting each other, all of that. And then there's this other really cool thing when we transitioned to private practice that you're right, getting to know clients for longer because they can be with us for years. And it's just, this is where I say, and, and forgive me for sounding cocky. This is just where I'm so grateful for what we do or what I do. I just, I think it's amazing. Something that you said before we get to the kids, because this is what I want to talk about, is, and you and I talked about this the other day, and, and I think it was you, forgive me if it wasn't. I remember when I was in graduate school, I had one class that talked about eating disorders, not even one semester long class one actually day of a 90 minute lecture. And it made me think of that when you said that you studied so much in college, cause that's amazing. I didn't get that. And I thought, I know how to have an eating disorder, but who the hell is gonna teach me how to treat an eating disorder? Which is how you and I had incredible training. We did a lot of conferences, things like that. But what was your experience like learning how to treat eating disorders? Yeah, Karen, I had the same experience as you. And that is actually what kind of, I don't know, I, I want to say it woke up the activist in me, but I'm not much of an activist. Um, but it, I think that it ignited this passion in me because I had a, a very similar experience. I was a psychology major in undergrad and I had to do a focus, which is similar to a minor, is what my, my school made me do. I, I went to University of Texas, San Antonio, and uh, my focus was in community health. And I was in a health psychology class and, um, you know, health psychology, you're thinking, obviously, we're going to talk about a lot of mental uh, illnesses that also impact our physical health. You would think eating disorders would be something we would spend many, a lot of classes talking about. And we had one class and one, like you said, one, maybe 90 minute class where the professor shared the diagnoses and the research and the treatment and and he, I remember he shared the, the, the mortality rate that one in 10 people die from anorexia. 
that who, who are diagnosed with anorexia and that it has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. And I remember thinking, why aren't we talking about this more? How is this so deadly? And we spent, you know, two weeks talking about depression and, and two weeks talking about anxiety. And we spent 90 minutes talking about this illness. Um, and so what I, when I say I, I, I spent a lot of time in my undergraduate studies focusing on eating disorders, I turned every project I could, every paper I could, any research I did, um, any interviews we had to conduct uh, on, on eating disorders. Because I thought, well, if no one's going to talk about this and think about it, I'm going to, because this is, this is a big problem. Um, and then really got the best training I could have ever gotten from um, my time in treatment centers. Yeah, I I had to create independent studies to to learn, like I said, other than having one to learn how to work with one. That sort of leads me to ask because I said I've had one and Rachel, you have not. But can you share with everybody what your experience was like when you were younger? Because it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, so I, you know, I say that I'm lucky to have never had an eating disorder and and um and that's because I know how having, you know, treated them, how challenging and just hard they are for people to go through. So I feel lucky that I've never actually experienced one. However, in, in high school, um, I was, a, you know, I was an average kid growing up, average size. Um, I had an older sister and in high school, my sister and I both played soccer and, um, we're kind of all growing up. When I got to high school, I started playing like round the clock soccer. I was playing for a club team and I was playing for my high school team. I had two practices a day, morning and night. And um, I was eating everything in sight because I was growing and I was just training so much for the sport. And um, at the same time, because I had increased my training so much, uh, playing for the high school team as well, I was losing weight, a lot of weight. And my mom somehow got into her mind. And I'm not sure if someone brought a concern to her or. And maybe I should ask her, <laughs> um, but she she was she just was convinced that I was bulimic, that there was no way that I could be eating as much as I was eating and be as thin as I was and and losing weight even. Um, and she yeah, so she was convinced I was bulimic, and it was so interesting. Now that I look back at it, now that I have my own training, and I see really what you do to to treat eating disorders when someone really is um, using their behavior so actively. My mom did that in my own home, as you know, for probably a solid, I would say maybe three months. Um, and in, when I was in high school, I was I was observed going to the bathroom after meals. Um, she cooked for me to make sure that I ate enough. <laughs> she would ask me what what why I was going back to get more food. And um, I remember at the time it was very frustrating because I was not throwing up my food. Um, I was. I was eating because I was hungry. I was eating because I was training so much. And um, it was hard to live in that experience and feel like I couldn't even convince my own mother that there was nothing wrong with me and that my relationship with food was maybe just a little different than what she thought it was. I want to jump in for one second and then I want you to keep going. I have to wonder, and by the way, this is nothing about your mom. This is about culture, you know, our societal, you know, messages. If you were a male athlete, if you were a young boy, growing boy, 
playing soccer around the clock with a huge appetite, nobody would have suspected that. Isn't that fascinating? Just because in our culture, women, girls are not supposed to, which I'm putting in air quotes, have, you know, big appetites and, you know, want to eat a lot of food to the point that people thought you had an eating disorder. I apologize for interrupting, keep going, but that's what came to my mind. Yeah. And it is a really good point because I I do think that if, if I, you know, if I, if I was male, I don't think that it would have, it would have been noticed. I don't think it would have been considered a problem, but you're right. I think the, uh, just kind of the judgment of, well, what, how in the world are you eating this much and you're this thin? And, um, and it's funny because my mom, even to this day, sometimes will say, but are you sure you didn't? And, and I don't know that I'll ever convince her. My mom and I have a great relationship. We love each other. We trust each other. We're very, very close, which I think is why she felt she could be so honest and, um, and, and just have so much concern for me. But it even happened again in high school or in, in um, college with a college roommate who was convinced that I had an eating disorder same thing. I was just active and, um, and eating a lot. And I was always the person who cooked for people and, um, and it, it caused a rift in that relationship as well. So it always just brought up a very interesting, um, experience and dynamic for me in that you really cannot, you really cannot judge someone's, uh, relationship with food based on what you see them doing with their food and their body. And we talk about that so much in the other direction right? With eating disorders, um, that just because someone is an average size, they could be struggling and you, you can't assume that an eating disorder just looks like a thin person, but at the same time, a thin person doesn't instantly mean eating disorder. Right. And, and I know that as a professional, I even have to watch that with myself sometimes making that quick judgment, but it's an interesting experience growing up with that. It, it is interesting. And again, I just keep going back to, I can hear, you know, I can hear my friends with that have young boys and they're like, oh, he's growing. He eats me out of house and home. And I always have to go to the supermarket because I have two boys and da-da. And yet for a young girl, there's suspicion that it's an eating disorder. It is, it is unbelievable. That leads me to the work that you do with kids because Rachel it takes it takes a unique person from my perspective now i'm I, again i mean no disrespect adolescents terrify me any adolescents out there you ter- i'm terrified because they have as much suffering as an adult but they don't have the language and so that frightens me Hence why I hire people at my center that specifically work with adolescents, because I think it takes a a certain niche. Tell me a little bit about your experience working with kids. I think that uh, one reason I I tend to be drawn to them slash somehow manage to work well with them. You know, I started out as a therapist really young. I was like 22. And um, I don't know if I was the youngest person in the treatment center at that time, but I certainly looked the youngest, right? I'm, I'm in my thirties now and still get carded sometimes. So, <laughs> um, and I'm great. I'm grateful for it, you know, but I think, um, I think there's just something about my appearance 
um, and maybe my energy that, that kids just feel comfortable around me. Um, but I love kids. You know, I, what I love about them is they're, they're so, so naughty, um, but there's so much hope with them. And, um, and so, you know, when I first started working as a therapist, there were a couple cases where um, working with the kids really meant working with the parents a lot. Um, obviously, when you're working with a, a young client, a lot of the work is going to be focused on the family and, and how to have this family help this client through what they're going through. And the, it, you know, obviously, mostly the moms, just like my own mother, very, very, very concerned and, um, and wanting to be very involved in the treatment, rightfully so. And I somehow kind of quickly learned how to, as my uh, boss at the time said, knew how to hold my own with these parents. And now looking back, I think it's a level of respect I have for them of what they're going through with their kid and understanding their fear, understanding that they're just terrified. While it might come off as them yelling at you for you know, the, the treatment not working or they're not getting better fast enough or why aren't you doing this? They're scared. Um, and why wouldn't they be, right? Your, your kid is your, one of your most important things in your life, if not the most important thing in your life. And I knew that with my mom, that my sister and I were that for her. So I don't get it. I don't, I'm not afraid to work with kids. I like working with them a lot. They, they're, because they're so naughty sometimes, they're just really fun. <laughs> It's my favorite line when you said that the other day, you're like, they're so naughty and they're so hopeful. There's so much hope. And I'm like, oh, that's a beautiful way of putting it. I also want to say one of our jobs, and this is not easy because we do respect the whole family system, but sometimes we also get a glimpse of what the child is having to navigate through at home because of the contact that we have with the parents. And so it goes both ways. Like I, I love working with families. I love holding the parents. Again, if I get a parent though, that's texting me six times a day and they're always calling me and I'm going to take the child to the hospital and they're not eating. So I'm going, or what all this anxiety. And I think, oh boy, it's, it's okay that the parent has this anxiety, but that's what the child is also experiencing. And so it's complicated, right? And another thing you and I have talked about is how do you hold the confidentiality of that child or your client because we want to have that connection so they at least have one place they can go to and be completely honest at the same time, respecting that they are minors and there are some things that the parents do need to be informed about. How do you navigate through that? Yeah, that is, that is one, that is very challenging. And I want to speak to something that you said, talking about really quick about the, the parents anxiety and the kind of the glimpse we get into what that looks like at home. Um, I am someone who's always going to, no matter how challenging or difficult or, um, you know, helicoptery the parents are. I'm always with the kid going to love that parent and, and make that parent, um, feel, seem like what they're doing is, is, is appropriate, right? As long as there's no abuse involved, as long as they're, it's, it's just concern and maybe some, some drama and mom gets upset. Um, 
because it's easier for that kid to understand and love their parent if if I love their parent. If I'm sitting there saying, I know your mom is a lot. I know how I know how how dramatic she can be. Um, now the 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 kid just gets to go on get on that train with me, you know. Sometimes I think though it's important to bring it in with the child so it validates their experience. And I always say, and it makes I I get it because your your parents are so nervous. So I never say it in the sense of oi. Oy vey, my my Jewishness is coming out. Oy vey, there's your parents are driving me crazy. They're calling all the time. But what I can say is I'm noticing this. And so how's it impacting you? Because the motivation behind your parents being a helicopter parent is typically because they love you so much. At the same time, we can't deny that it's impacting you. So I think you and I hold both. I would never, ever say, oh, God, your parents are driving me crazy or, oh, God. And like I said, I feel like it's important to acknowledge and acknowledge it to the parents. And that's that takes a lot of finesse because again, I respect the family system. And so how we communicate to the parent in a respectful way of saying, I've got this, it's okay. That's also, I think that's interesting. I, I don't know why I'm just thinking about this. When we're working with minors, our, our client, shall we say, becomes pretty much the family. And that can be complicated. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. Yeah, it, it definitely can. And you're exactly right that acknowledging that entire family dynamic is so important, right? To have to have that kid understand that you see the the stress that they're under with the family, you know, just so that it 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 it's acceptable that they can feel stressed. And also, you know, sometimes it makes it not that big of a deal. Like, yeah, your mom is stressed. Let's understand why. Um, rather than demonizing that mom, like you said. Um, but yeah, when when you are working with someone who's younger or really even someone who just still lives at home, I sometimes think that you have a couple clients. <laughs> you know, you have the, the, um, the adolescent, but then you have the mom and you have the dad or whoever the caregivers are for that person. And, and that I think is what does tend to scare some clinicians away because it is a little bit more work. Um, it's navigating, it's navigating two personalities. It's navigating the whole dynamic um, and balancing that fine line between respecting, like you said, the confidentiality, which is hard when you want this kiddo to trust you. And, um, and unfortunately right now, I mean, especially, especially right now with what we're going through with the pandemic, the, um, the rates of suicidality and suicidal ideation in our kids are really increasing. And so it's, it, it's definitely um, a balancing act of navigating how do, I, how do I keep this kid's trust with me that they can disclose to me how they're feeling without uh, holding information that is potentially going to put them in an unsafe situation for mom and dad. Um, and then knowing sometimes when there are really reactive parents who are just going to react and be terrified the minute that they hear that their daughter said that they don't want to be alive. Um, I, I find that it's really in how you deliver that information to the parent is really helpful. Um, I always, always, always start 
with my clients who are younger by telling them that I have open lines of communication with your parents. That does not mean I'm going to call them every time you have a session and tell them every detail of what we said. Um, but it does mean that if there are things I'm concerned about, or if, if your parents need to talk with me about something, we will talk. And I will always tell you when I talk with your parents. And, and that I think really helps them. Um, that I'll always tell them that I will always tell them when I'm going to, or when I have talked with their parents. I often also like to invite them into the conversation sometimes. If, if there's something that I want to talk about with their parents, I'll say, we can do it together if you want to, so that they know that this isn't just me going to, I'm not going to go tattletale on them. I'm not going to say anything to their parent that I wouldn't say in front of them. And I think that that just helps them feel comfortable, you know, that if they want to, they can be a part of it. And if they don't, they're, they're almost allowing me to do some hard work that they're maybe not comfortable doing. And then it maybe feels like I'm doing them a favor. I also think that one of the, what you provide for them is a space to say, why don't we say it together? And, and I'm going to be here to support you regardless, like, you know, we don't know how your parents are going to respond. Yeah, it's going to be tough. I'm going to help you through it. I'm going to teach you how to have hard conversations. By the way, it also depends on the age of the client. It depends on what the situation is. There is no blanket one way of doing it with anyone, with, with children, with adults, with adolescents. So it's so, it's, it's just, it's, it's pretty, it's broad. I don't know why broad is the word I'm coming up with because that doesn't feel like it's capturing it, but but it's, it's yeah, I'm just going to stick with that word. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it really is. It really is. And I think that that's also what's, what you have to remember, especially working with, with younger kids. It can feel really scary. They can feel so fragile. Um, and like, there's so many ways you can maybe get in trouble with working with them, right? Um, but there, there aren't that many hard and fast rules with kids. And ultimately, I've found that if you do kind of allow some flexibility in your work with them and some flexibility and just be sure that with the parents and be sure that there's just a lot of communication, um, you kind of can't go wrong. But again, it is that a lot of communication that I think is hard for some people. Um, and I, I totally understand that. How do you help parents, let's say using the situation that your mom thought you were in, where she thought you were purging, how do you direct direct parents to navigate through these waters? You know, I I have a, 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 a woman who works for me that works with adolescents. And one of the things we're trying to do right now, and by the way, this is for this client, we're trying to keep her out of residential. She has not gone yet. She's 13. We want to be careful that she's not exposed to other behaviors and things like that. I also want to say that there are times when they have to go. Regardless, it's in their best interest. And so how do you help parents when a client, when when an adolescent is kind of walking the fine line and you're trying to keep them safe, but we don't want the parents to get overly enmeshed in some of the responsibilities because then that can damage the relationship. How do you guide parents through this? Well, the first thing that came to mind, my mind was um, really specific behavioral 
goals um, and kind of guidelines that we all would set together, you know, as a whole team, as mom and kid and dad and whoever is in the family, that we would all come up with, these are the things we need to see you do in order to client, kiddo, in order to stay out of treatment. And and you know, parents are going to enforce these and be sure that that you are sticking to these. And that might be maintaining a certain weight, um, eating, you know, certain amount of food, not engaging in some behaviors. I always like to include things like, you know, keeping up whatever your grades might be, you know, that your academic performance is still what it what it has been. Um, activities, you're still being social. Because really, if we if we do that, it's not that the parents are forcing the kid to do something, right? The responsibility is in the kid. It's up to you if you do these things. If you want to stay out of treatment, then, then this is what we're saying we need. We need to see from you um, in order for that. And, and I think that that kind of takes that power struggle out of it, right? It's clear. It's there. And if you can't do it, that's okay. But that means then you need a little bit more support. I also think, and one of the things that I feel like you and I learned in working under Carolyn is that if we're, if there's going to be a quote unquote consequence, and I want to be careful with that word, it has to match where they're at. So if a client is binging and purging, you don't, you know, take away their, uh, I don't know why I'm saying, you don't take away all of their sneakers or whatever. I'm just saying, you, you do something that matches, uh, you know, let me, let me take a step back as opposed to a punishment. So if somebody's engaging in behaviors and you say, well, you don't get to watch TV tonight, that's a punishment. It doesn't support or help them in any way. But if somebody binges and purges and you say, you know what, as a result, I can't let you go out for ice cream with your friends because I'm concerned there's gonna be a behavior. I don't know if that's even a good example either, but it's gotta match so it feels like it's supporting the recovery process as opposed to a punishment. Did that make sense? I don't know if I... It does make sense. And I think that that's one thing that I'm finding is very, very hard for parents these days because they are grasping for something that that they think is really important to the kid to say, okay, I'm going to take this away um, because this thing is really important to you. So if I take this important thing away from you, you'll stop doing this behavior that I don't want you to do. And it's often the cell phone. That's what I find parents take away a lot. They say, okay, I'm taking your cell phone away. Um, and then we just got that power struggle going on. And I, and I, I will say that sometimes it does work, right? Cause that is a huge motivator. Kids do want their cell phones. Um, but you really hit the nail on the head that, but how are we addressing the actual behavior? How are we addressing that, that, that issue, that illness really of why she's engaging in this behavior? We're, we're missing the boat there. And so you are completely right that it's, it's really important to find uh, a consequence that's directly linked to that behavior, not just a punishment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I also want to say parents are exhausted and they're stressed and they're terrified. And so sometimes parents are just going to say enough, no TV tonight. It happens. I I really want to say to parents, it happens. 
Are you noticing anything different with regards to clients? Um, I'm going to say intensity of their eating disorders, increased anxiety, things like that because of the pandemic. What are you noticing? It's really hard. It's, it's, it's hard for, I mean, it's hard for everybody right now. Um, but I am noticing an increase in the, um, the struggle that the young ones are going through right now. Um, so many kids, uh, they're, you know, they kind of, they get, they get their, they, their juice, their energy from, from social things and from activity. And they're not getting that like they used to. Um, and we know, we know that, that social media and cell phones and, and screen time internet is not great for kids. It's not the worst thing in the world for kids, but it's not great. And it's all they have right now. And it's not really being talked about too much. You know, here we are for so many years saying, keep your kids off the screen, keep your kids off the screen. And now they're always on the screen and we can't help that. It's the safest thing to do right now. Um, but I am noticing that, yeah, just kind of the intensity of the emotion, um, the intensity of the experience of the struggle is definitely increasing. Um, and so I, I, I 100% agree with you. Parents are at their breaking points right now. And it is understandable why they sometimes might just grab the cell phone and say, you cannot have this anymore, or you are grounded. Um, and every parent has the right to do that. Um, rupture and repair is massive in relationships. And parents need to be able to, to break down and lose it occasionally and then go back to her kid and say, I'm sorry, I was upset and I shouldn't have reacted that way. Um, and that's just a real thing that happens in a relationship. One of the things that I always 100% without fail will recommend to parents of a client who is struggling is their own therapist. And I think that is just so, so helpful. It's helpful in so many ways, right? For that parent to have a space where they can get their own support, where they can vent, where they can cry, where they can process why some of these things are hard for them. Um, it also honestly takes a little bit of pressure off of me. Um, it, it's not appropriate for me to be that person's therapist. So I want them to have their person that they can call and for their child to see, oh, they are getting help too. It's not just me who's the problem. And that kind of instantly changes that dynamic of identified patient. So without fail, any kid I work with, I will always recommend that the parents either do uh, have their own individual therapist based on what the dynamic is, or maybe that the, the parents have a couples therapist that they work together on that, on that parental unit. Um, and when they, if they do, I've never seen it not help. I know that parents often feel that uh, they're going to be blamed if they go to therapy uh, uh, and talk about it. I think that often parents do say, it's not my problem, it's the child, it's theirs. And as you were saying, the impact that it has on, on the parents is can be so, so challenging. It can, it can erode away at the parents' confidence in their parenting skills. I've had parents say to me, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'm embarrassed that I have a child with an eating disorder. And I say, let's talk about it. Okay. Nothing that you say is not okay to say. That's that's the intention of getting therapy. And there is shame attached to it. 
what do you find has been, I don't know if this is even a question that could be answered in because it's sort of vague, but do you find there's anything in particular that helps kids the most? Um, are you finding that what you're working on is their self-esteem or is it social anxiety? Um, is it is it generalized anxiety? Like what are some of the things that you're finding and how do you help with that? Uh, it's a good question. You know, obviously everyone is different, but I, I do think um, that you're right. There are some commonalities, some patterns, just, just even in our society, and maybe even just particularly in Southern California um, that our kids are experiencing. And, and one of them definitely is self-esteem. Um, and we're just seeing that more and more in our youth right now um, with the increase in bullying and the increase in expectations and pressures based on social media, that the self-esteem, self-confidence um, is really taking a hit um, in our youth. And so that is something that I think across the board, probably with all of the children that I treat, all the adolescents that I treat, I should say, um, is something that I can focus on with them. And, and that if, if they can learn to identify things about themselves that they like, that their, their mood and their experiences tend to improve. Another thing that I, I think, and you mentioned this before when you said you're terrified of working with kids, you said because they don't have the language to explain their emotions and that's scary. And I think that that is, if I would have to pick another thing, I'd say that that's one of the biggest things that's helpful in working with children is adolescents is that they are still, their brain's still developing that part um, to understand their emotion, to communicate their emotion. Um, well, I mean, all kinds of things to understand risk, but teaching them how to have awareness into their, their feelings and into their thoughts, I think is really helpful. And that's something that I'm very passionate about. Um, I think I learned the importance of of understanding your your thoughts and your feelings just in my training working with eating disorders. But I think that with children, that can be really helpful to help them kind of clue into their experience a little bit more. Kids are so automatic, right? They're they're nonstop. They're running around, they're doing this, they're, you know, these days they're school and this practice and and you know, this activity and this after school. And they don't have a whole lot of time to sit and think about how did I feel today? What thoughts did I have today? Um, just do, do, do. And so I think that's really helpful with, with kids is giving them a moment to check in with themselves. Um, and, and maybe that helps them then gain some more control over themselves and their experiences. I know this is a pretty provocative question, but how do you help the parents who bring their child in and say, my child is eating too much. My child needs to lose weight. My child uh, does not have good eating. Like, how do you, because that's a tough one, right, Rachel? And I know I've gotten them before. I've gotten parents say to me, my child won't stop eating. She's gaining weight. He's gaining weight. I don't want them to be teased. That's what parents often say to me. I don't want them to be teased. How do you work with that? Those are hard cases because I think that we then sit in the room with the client and we know 
how that affects them. And they tell us how that affects them. Um, and I, one thing that I will say is that majority of my clients, particularly those who are struggling with an eating disorder, depending on where they are in their recovery, um, majority of them, I, I do recommend that they work with a dietitian or some form of a nutritionist. Um, and especially with the children, because their nutrition at that age is really important that they are getting um, adequate nutrition and, um, you know, the components that they need for their growth, right? And so um, with, with parents, I think sometimes parents tend to, in this situation, I would definitely say, let's, let's talk with a professional about the actual food. Let's talk about the professional about their actual nutritional needs in the moment. And, um, and make it a little bit more medical um, because that I think can help them almost kind of like medicine. If your kid had a cold, what kind of medicine would you give them, right? Um, and so I, I, I will say, I, I want you to reach out to a dietitian, work with that person as well. And then I'll work together with that person. But it's a hard conversation to have with a parent to say, um, you know, why are, why are you concerned about that? Why does it bother you if she gains weight? What are your fears of her gaining weight? Um, so it's some work you have to do with the parent on, on why that matters to them. And then, like I said, bringing the kid in that conversation. And it is not, it is not a, fun, a fun hour when you have to listen to a little one telling her mom, you make me feel bad when you say that I can't have that donut. But sometimes the mom needs to hear that from the little girl. And I've had those conversations. Um, and it's a little bit more effective, I think, sometimes than me coming in and saying, you can't say that, you can't say this, um, for mom to hear from her daughter why she might actually be negatively impacting her, right? Doing the thing that mom doesn't want. I don't want her to feel bad about herself. I don't want her to gain weight and then feel self-conscious mom, you're making me feel self-conscious by what you're saying. Um, and, and those conversations, while they're very, very hard to sit through, I have seen them be incredibly impactful sometimes. I've also seen them go completely the wrong way. Um, but I think that that just direct communication is helpful. Yeah. Do you feel that, and, and this is me making a, a really broad statement. So I want to I want to start by saying, forgive me if people think I'm saying anything negative about Los Angeles because I lived there. That's how you and I are friends. Um, but do you think the culture of LA, the media, Hollywood models, the 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 parent, the stage parent, things like that, does that perpetuate more eating disorders, or does that does that complicate things with kids coming in with body image or the parent coming in saying, I want my son or daughter to lose weight? Like, or am I just making that up in my mind, Rachel? <laughs> Definitely not making it up in your mind. I mean, we know for a fact that if we look at, if we were to, if there was a map to be plotted of the diagnoses across our country, um, anorexia and bulimia are the, the most prevalent on our coasts, right? In, in California and in New York. And um, LA 100%, Southern California, there is a, we all know this, there's a massive um, significance put on, on your appearance. Um, you know, they've even done research that even just in beach towns in general, that the, um, 
you know, the body image is a lot higher in beach towns. And that makes sense, right? If, if it's always 75 and sunny, and you always have the opportunity to go to the beach. Um, that's going to be on people's minds a little bit more. Um, you're not making an assumption in any way. I'm from Texas, you know, and if my mom hadn't accused me of having an eating disorder as, as a kid, I probably wouldn't have even known about them until I was in college. Um, granted, the, the food struggles are different, right, in, in that part of the country. Um, but I remember my, when I first started working in them, my pediatrician from back home in Texas called and said, can you please come back here and treat our kids here? Because no one knows how to do it because they don't talk about eating disorders. They're just not as prevalent. Yes, it is definitely, I would say, uh, a lot harder for, for folks um, in that realm in terms of body image out here in California. And you can't deny that when you're talking about it with them. We have to just acknowledge it, that there is, um, unfortunately, you know, that is a part of our culture out here. Yeah, it's it's tough enough out there and then add that extra layer. And again, I mean no disrespect to Los Angeles. So I, I'm not, I, I hope listeners are hearing me say it from a place of just having experience living out there, what my experience was seeing what the culture is like. So again, no disrespect. Rachel, we are in a in a minute or two. We're going to have to start winding this up, which breaks my heart because this is so important. I I said to you before, I can't believe I think you're the first one that I'm having on talking about treating children and adolescents and I I don't know why, but I'm so grateful for you on so many levels. Is there Anything before we start winding up that I didn't ask you or that you would like to say? Well, I think I touched on it for a second. And I think that um, just one other thing that I feel really passionate about, um, you know, we mentioned we mentioned working with kids, obviously, and, and how I got into eating disorders. But one other thing that I could talk about for hours. I hear part two coming up. Okay, keep going. Is that that the the control that we can have over our experiences and i i just i just say this because it's really something that i find i bring into a lot of my work really all my work with my clients in one way or another is um i mean i guess if we were to just make it simple and and short we would just call it cbt cognitive behavioral therapy um you know i'm not a i'm not a trained cognitive behavioral therapist um but in my work with eating disorders and really just in my own experiences in my life i've learned that um while i can't control everything you know i call myself a, a recovered control freak because i would say that that's one of the biggest things that i've worked on in my life is is how to not feel like i have to have control over every situation um but but what i've learned is that if i can become aware of my thoughts Notice how those thoughts affect my feelings. Notice how then my, my feelings affect my behavior. I really can have control over my experiences. And I have just found that to be so helpful, not with every single client, but with really a lot of my clients and just in my own life personally. Um, I just think that that's something that could be talked about a lot more in a very, I don't want to say simple, um, but 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 kind of kind of simple way of of doing the work that maybe we all wish we could do. Oh, I I want to feel better. I I wish I didn't do this or um, I don't like thinking that way. 
we are actually in control of that. A lot easier said than done, of course. Um, but yeah, that's just something that I've always found to be really interesting and, and useful. Um, so I just, of course, have to give that a little plug. So as I said, of course, there is going to have to be a part two, which makes me thrilled. Rachel, before we end, I always ask a final question. And that question for you is, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? <laughs> I hope it would say something good. <laughs> um, I, wow, I would say, maybe it would say, for a good party, call Rachel Garrison. And I'm not talking about a rager, unless by rager, you mean a phenomenal charcuterie plate. Um, because I love to throw parties. I love to host. I think it's the Texan in me. You know, my mom was always that person. If, if anyone showed up at the door, no matter who it was, no matter what time of day, she'd put out a whole spread. She always made them feel welcome. And I do, I love hosting parties. It's one of my favorite things to do. I miss sitting with you at these parties where we used to have charcuterie plates and wine and great conversation. Oh my goodness. Rachel, I cannot thank you enough for being part of this podcast. Thank you, Karen. It has been amazing. I really appreciate it. I am so impressed with all the work you do. And I'm so glad to be a part of this great community of people you've had on this show. Well, you, my darling, are so dear to me. And this this has been a treat for me. So again, I want to say thank you. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.